I'm here with Bill Jackson, professor of clarinet at the University of Northern Colorado and an artist's uh, faculty for the Aspen Music Festival. And when he isn't teaching the clarinet virtuosos of tomorrow, Bill is the principal clarinet with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra and the Aspen Chamber Symphony. First off, how did the timeline work out for all this, Bill? Did you start out focusing on playing and kind of add in the teaching duties later or vice versa? Kind of how did all that progression work out? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, as with most young people, I started uh, professionally when I was 20 um, with the Honolulu Symphony before moving to Colorado. And I'll speak for myself, but I know that a lot of younger people tend to be a little bit more focused on themselves. And so early on, I was focused on performance. As I've gotten older, the teaching, uh, the, the aspect of teaching has taken on a greater importance in my life priorities uh, with how I spend my time. And, you know, uh, disseminating, passing on the fundamentals and really the uh, the history, not only the history of, of, of our instrument, how it evolved, the pedagogy that goes along with supporting that, and also again to reiterate the fundamentals that were passed on to me by a very fine teacher and player, Robert Marcellus. I feel that I have a responsibility, a duty to pass this information on because it's good stuff. Um, so in that respect, uh, the teaching came, actually I developed probably a love of teaching from my father because I remember as a, I'm an only child, so I of course was a focus of a lot of his attention. But I remember him always coming from the standpoint when we would be discussing something, he would ask, why do you think that? What What is causing you to come up with that statement? Or in other words, in a compassionate way, wanting me to support my viewpoint mm -hmm. from an early age. That's a wonderful way to think, you know. So that the, the seed, the seed of, of the love of teaching, I think, probably came from him. Well, you obviously mentioned before that uh, you know there's a lot going on in Colorado, a lot of music events, and all the different groups that you're uh, involved with there. Um, and coming from all these places, do you you find that you kind of gravitated toward Colorado because you like the vibe there? Is there a, maybe a different feel to Colorado, or did it just kind of work out that way, and you happen to be there? Or? Well, it's interesting. It's an excellent question. Um, in some areas of music, you have flexibility. With where you move, um, and more, and a friend of both uh, Jim Murphy and, and myself, Nelson Rangel, mm -hmm. for instance. And Nelson is a. Fr I, I met Nelson actually through Jim, um, and since that introduction, we've become friends. And Nelson probably could live where he wanted to. You know, he's obviously a very gifted player. My situation is a little different because 
I make my bread and butter as an orchestral musician, and I also have a teaching position, as you mentioned earlier, at the University of Northern Colorado. But even if you're in the teaching industry, you might have a little more flexibility because there are more universities that pay a living wage than there are orchestras that pay a living wage. So you basically go where the openings are. You make a decision. When I first started out, the entire United States was open to me because I would start at an entry-level position in an orchestra and go wherever that was. That happened to be Honolulu. Rough place to be. Yeah. Um, sure, it was terrible. Yeah, it was just awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the next job that came up, literally the very next job that was open was the um, De what was then the Denver Symphony. It's changed names to the Colorado Symphony, but that was 1982. I took the job or took the audition and won it. So that made my decision where I yeah. move, you know. Now, there are probably certain areas, well, I can tell you and I won't name them because I would not want to offend anybody, but um, there are certain areas in the United States I simply wouldn't audition for just because at this point I wouldn't want to live there. Yeah. And Colorado is a great place to live. Aside from the not wanting to live there, I assume that's, you know, again, not wanting to offend anybody, maybe just kind of the personality of the people around it and that sort of vibe? Or is that more of a musically, do you find that there's any difference there? Well, you know, how people interpret things. Uh, you mean geographically? Yeah. Uh, you know, orchestral musicians, for the most part, we there, there are certain schools. I mean, if you get into an orchestra, you've gone, you obviously have musical ability for, you know, and the good schools tend to produce the high percentage of, of the body, the, the musician body of these, of orchestras, regard, regardless where you are geographically in the United States. So you're not going to notice a whole lot of difference, you know, if you, if you pull us, let, let's say for instance, you pull uh, a second fiddle player out of an orchestra in Denver, you pull a second fiddle player out of an orchestra in Indianapolis, for instance, you pull a second fiddle player out of Dallas. They're all going to have similar, similar training. I mean, there is, you know, in your area of expertise, there are going to be subtle differences between teaching styles. So if you come from a particular school of playing, you're going to notice subtle differences. But the, 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 the basic fundamentals of these musicians, myself included, are going to be fairly similar from orchestra to orchestra. Where you're going to notice musical um, distinctions in, in, in interpretation and maybe um, you know the sound of an orchestra comes from the music director. Now that personality okay. influences, if you've got an influential person and somebody, irrespective of whether or not you agree with that person's vision or not, mm -hmm. I think as an orchestral musician you have a duty to sub, you know, to to subject yourself or to make yourself subservient to the good of the whole, and so that's one of the challenges of an orchestral musician is, especially as a principal player in an orchestra, where principal players generally have pretty strong egos. I do. I'm convinced about what I'm doing, and if a if a conductor comes in, or, but if Jeff Kahane, who is our music director, who I respect tremendously as a musician, as a human being. If he asks me to do something, I will do it. I may not agree with it, but I will do it. You know. Now with Jeff, I do it out of my respect for him. If a guest conductor comes in, I do it. I may be doing it begrudgingly. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I know it from being at different trade shows that cover diff multiple instruments. You know, doing a trumpet show or a trombone show, clarinet show, so on and so forth. That 
you know, that's something that I sometimes will pick up on here and there that people, you know, tend to think that there's maybe a, a New York sound to trumpet playing or an L.A. style or, you know, just was curious well, if that a, applied as much. Well, you know, that's an excellent question. And I, I think that, you know, you can, ex, you can expand that <clears throat> to a, a European, an English sound, a French mm, sound, okay. a German sound, an Eastern European sound, an American mm. sound. And so I think that, we, you know, it's kind of like you take a look at the economy. I mean, po politics anymore are global. And what has happened with the technology advancements of the past, you know, 20 years or so, but especially it's ramped up in the recent decade, certainly, there, there is less and less of this identifiable sound. Now, I mean, there was a time where you could identify a French clarinetist, you could identify an English clarinetist, a German clarinetist, and in this country, we have a blend of French American. In, 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 I didn't say that clearly. Daniel Bonnard is really the father of clarinet playing in this country. And back in the early part of last century, um, there was really the European tradition was dominant in orchestral life in this country. Um, and that was because, I mean, basically the United States was still kind of young. Back in 1910, 1920, you know, we're not, we're talking about 100 and what, 40 years, 150 years. And again, technology being what it was, the only mode of transportation across the Atlantic Ocean at that point was ship, which I think, what was it, a three week, maybe even more, longer trip. So the influences, the art influences, basically what people tend to do is they tend to try to recreate their home wherever they move to. So you had Europeans coming over and immigrating to this country, lot, some of them with a lot of money, and they would try to recreate their familiar surroundings in this country. And so that's where the influences came from. And so the early conductors of orchestras in this country tended to be European. Of course, they knew their players, and they wanted to recreate what they were familiar with. So they would bring European musicians to this country. Now, in the case of the clarinet, Stokowski brought... Daniel Bernard, French. In fact, the Philadelphia Orchestra at that time, he brought French musicians over. I wish I could remember the bassoonist and the flute player, but the oboist was Marcel Tabuteau, who really felt was, was one of the inspirations for the American school, French-American school of oboe play. Now, Marcel Moïse, I don't know enough about Moïse, and obviously some of uh, Jeff Kaner or you know, Brad Garner could speak eloquently about that, and I won't even get into that. But um, the the situation, getting back to the clarinet, Daniel Bernard started what we now know as the French American School, and Stokowski. The reason I put American in there is because Bernard was used to playing on a very very light setup in in France, and Stokowski, who really was a, a brilliant, had a brilliant ear for orchestration. I mean, he would he would be known to add a piccolo part to a violin part to bring out a certain line. In other words, make the piccolo double a violin part. Or have, um, for instance, in Beethoven 5, um, you know, the, the fate theme, yup up bum which is fate knocking on the door. That's what was, you know, Beethoven was going deaf at that point. And, uh, 
he said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I can't remember specifically, but I'm going to um, uh, confront fate. So, you know, um, embrace my fate or whatever. But he was very proactive about what he was dealing with. But Stokowski, later on in the development, actually changed some of the woodwind writing to bring out certain counterpoint. So what I'm getting at is that Stokowski had a very sophisticated ear. And um, Bernard came over, Stokowski brings him over, and Bernard is playing, but it wasn't a big enough sound. And so he had to really struggle with figuring out a way to produce a bigger sound for Stokowski. And so he you know, morphed his fundamentals to a certain extent to maybe stiffer reeds, maybe mouthpieces that have slightly bigger openings. The tape, the tip opening was slightly bigger. And then Mar Marcellus, who was a student of Bernard, even took it further and really was known, you know, one of the one of his hallmarks was huge sound, you know. And so that's where the French-American school kind of comes from. And so kind of coming full circle with the question that you originally asked about sounds. There are two basic sounds that are still kind of have some shelf life left, and that is the Curtis School, and then basically you had the you had the Bernard sound and you had the Marcellus sound. Now Marcellus being a student of Bernard certainly had some element in there, but there was Harold Wright, Daniel, but well of course Daniel Bernard, but then Harold Wright, uh, Anthony Giliotti, um, Ralph McLean, I mean, there was a whole school that was kind of out of the Curtis School, very refined sounds, very, you know, but a little bit on the smaller scale. Then you had the progeny, the uh, student uh, progeny of Marcellus, mm -hmm. myself, you know, Ted Owen, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, Greg Smith, who plays in Chicago Symphony. Um, I, can't, I don't remember if da uh, David Breeden, who has since passed away, was a Marcellus student, but there were Jeff Lerner down in the Houston area. Well, it, it, it kind of ties into where I wanted to go next, definitely, with uh, you know, those kind of broad concepts of uh, you know, big sounds or small sounds and, and having the historical knowledge of where all that comes from, the lineage, obviously uh, you know, something that uh, ties into one of your other duties, which, as I know, is working with Yamaha and developing clarinets. And uh, how the, basically the G series development and how that instrument uh, was presented and cur the current design, you know, how much involvement and influence that you've had in that. How did that process start and how does kind of the, the history of clarinet and clarinet making kind of, where does all of that fall in with the, uh, the G series and what you're working on now? The reason I'm with Yamaha is because of Jim Murphy, and um, and at that point Hiroshi Nakajima was uh, with Jim in Grand Rapids, and uh, both of them. I got a phone call from Jim, and 
at uh, I think it was 2000, 2001, somewhere in there, and they ended up making a trip to Denver, and Hiroshi, this was kind of an embryonic baby of his that Jim knew about and was kind of encouraging uh, to Hiroshi with some of the initial designs, and I, <clears throat> quite frankly, um, I had been frustrated with the inflexibility of other instrument makers uh, with, I won't name names, but there's a particular brand out there that still has the lion's share of the market that just kind of felt, okay, this is what we do, um, and it's a good instrument. No problem. I mean, there's no issue about that. But we're not going to change. This is what, it, you know, okay, well, yay, okay. It wasn't perfect. No instrument is. But at least to, to have, to acknowledge, in fact, to, you know, with people that have somewhat of a sophisticated perspective with the playing aspects of an instrument, mm -hmm. to at least solicit feedback and say, oh, yeah, okay, all right, let's take a look at, let's do this. And that particular instrument maker, if you notice, from 10 years ago, has started, I mean, there have been other designs that they've put out there. But they've really accelerated their designs in now out of competition that you know other people are becoming more flexible. But the thing that was very intriguing to me with Yamaha was here, they were coming and saying, this is kind of what we're working on and we would love your feedback. Wow, how cool is that, you know? How cool is that? So I play this embryonic G-series and I said, wow, there's something in this sound, you know? There's something here. Hiroshi and Jim are onto something with this thing. And so I said, sign me up, you know? And so from that point forward, we started just, it's a slow process, you know? And we've got, just with slight modifications, okay, make the bore a little bigger here, make it a little smaller here. And again, it would be tedious to talk about this stuff uh, uh, in too much detail because it, it really, the proof's in the pudding anyway. It's, yeah. it's, so suffice it to say that it's been a, uh, a symbiotic process uh, with all involved and we've gotten to a situation in in just kind of general terms we have a clarinet the CSG H which H stands for the Hamilton plating which was a whole other aspect that we kind of solidified I was in Japan a few years ago on doing some other stuff for Yamaha and met with Roger Manners and Isao and Akie it was amazing because we had some of these CSGs, and by the way, it's basically a hybrid. It's kind of a takes what I think are the wonderful aspects of a German board instrument, and takes some of the wonderful aspects of a French bore. The German tending to be a pure German bore to me is a little bit too. Well, I use the term, and semantics are a difficult thing, you know, because what one thing one word means to one person, another can mean slightly different. But I mean dark in the sense that it there's not edginess to the sound. But sometimes the German, that particular clarinet, you need some highs in the sound for projection. And it's, it's, it's a little, sometimes the German can be a clarinet, pure German can be a little woofy. Um, it, it, it's dark, but there's not the core, the, the brilliance in the, in the center of the sound, which enables the sound to have 
legs, all right? And the French, on the other hand, the French bore, when you're putting a lot of air through it, you know, velocity of air can thin out and become shrill. And so the, the, the beauty and the, the intelligence behind this hybrid is that it allows you to do both without, comprom without compromise. You can play softly and still have the brilliance so that you have the projection, mm -hmm. or you can play loudly without the shrillness. Does, uh, and I get asked this question often, and maybe coming from you, if you can go a little deeper than I would be able to go into, does the Hamilton plating have an impact yes. in that sound? Thank you for bringing me back to that, because I meant to talk about that. So I'm in the Ginza with Roger and Aki Anasau, and they bring in four or five CSG silver-plated and about the same number of Hamilton plating. Blindfold. I was blindfolded. All right, I wanted to be. They turned their backs. Now, there was one person handing me, you know, putting the mouthpiece on for safety, and they were not uh, part of the, of the evaluation. There was one silver-keyed instrument that was pretty good, but every, the four or five Hamiltons were the top and one of the silver keyed. But the silver keyed was at the bottom of the, yeah. it was the bottom. But, yeah, every instrument with the exception of that one silver keyed instrument, we went with the Hamilton by sound. And sound is the most important thing, the most important initial aspect of any music making experience. If I can't get past the sound, whatever musical concepts the artist has are going to be tempered or, or mitigated to some extent. If I can't, if I don't love the sound, I'm not going to get into the rest of the of the communication. It's a little, it's creamier. It's uh, it add, the patina. I guess it adds a patina to the core sound that is almost seductive. I like that. We'll have to use that. Our next ad will mention patina and seductive. It's in. <laughs> and a couple just quick questions. Two two questions for you. When and if you go to Starbucks, what would you order? <laughs> okay, this is good. I would order a and this you have to because this I, one of the things that bugs me is I refuse to use their lexicon. <laughs> So I go no, into Starbucks. It's not a venti then, right? No. Okay. I order a medium coffee black shot in the dark. Nice. That's a new one. I'll have to try that one next time I go. But it has to well, be medium. Okay. Well, I get some raised eyebrows. I the, always the, the barista, but it, she's not, a, or he isn't a barista now. I, I don't the know. Pers, the counter person. I, oh, the counter person. Yeah, the counter person. I want a medium coffee. There you yeah, go. And just see how it goes. Okay. Uh, or how about yo? Yo. Yo. I'd like a medium coffee shot in the I'll dark. try it. I'll report on the next one here how it goes. Also, uh, another one here at the, not similar to the Desert Island pick, but but maybe taken the other way. What's on your iPod right now that you're you're spinning a lot? Something that's currently kind of in your, your favorite playlist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, actually, the Bach cello suites with Yo-Yo Ma. If I had to be stranded on a desert island, I would take... I would definitely music as much music of Bach as I possibly could could fit. 
And it's interesting. It's um, we were just having this discussion while I was ordering my medium shot in the dark <laughs> at Starbucks today. Um, the I noticed two of my favorite musicians. I, I love Al Jarreau, and, and, and this is just topical. I mean, there are so many great musicians. I mean, I think of Phil Woods, who's a Yamaha artist, a very dear friend of Jim's, uh, Jim Murphy, um, a person I want to meet at some point. I just got to meet this guy. But, I mean, there's so many great musicians, but I was reminded in a just because of the uh, immediate, I mean, the fact that it was topical. It was right there. Two great musicians, because if you listen to old George Benson, man, that cat could play bebop on the guitar like nobody's business. Yeah. I mean, I have this record, two records set, probably when Benson, I'm going to guess, was in his middle 20s, maybe late 20s, with Ronnie Cuber. It's called Benson Burner. Oh, man. Well, Ronnie Cuber is a great berry player. Mm -hmm. um, and the two of these guys, man, are just two records set burning. Well, great! Thank you so much for for hanging, and it was Absolutely. nice uh, giving you that you know that showing you around yeah. the facilities here. You know, one thing I just want to close with, I, I and I don't mean to get ahead of it. I just want to thank Yamaha for all they're doing. Extraordinary! Great! Thank you so much. Hey, thank you very much.